Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 231. Today's big Bible question is, how was the Ark of the Covenant so powerful? So happy Friday, friends. Our Bible readings for the day include 1 Samuel 4, Jeremiah 42, Psalms 18, and Romans 4. So there's four or five different approaches to each day's big Bible question that I take. I kind of think it is the headline to the show, the title, and uh, part of that is to sort of draw in maybe new subscribers or those that haven't downloaded in a while. The whole point of the title is to describe the contents, yes, but also to encourage you to partake of the contents. Thus, here are the top four forms the big Bible question usually takes on this show. Well, the first and most obvious is the just the facts, ma'am, form. Uh, and I probably should apologize here to Joe Friday from Dragnet, who actually never in his life said just the facts, ma'am. His line was actually, all we want are the facts, ma'am. And uh, the just the facts, ma'am thing came from a satire of, dra- of Dragnet. But I digress, as I often do. And the normal headline for the show is a just the facts kind of headline of just straight up Bible question. Sometimes the big Bible question is absolutely straightforward, and that's for all you people out there who just like things to be simple and what they appear to be. But sometimes it's the number two situation, and I make the big Bible question clickbait. In other words, it's sort of over the top. It's sort of enticing. It's meant to get you curious enough to download. Now, usually when in the title is obviously clickbaity, I'm trying to be a little ironic and over the top for the sake of humor. Or, number three, the big Bible question might be humorous. Or, you know, to be fair, usually more like attempted humor. This is like the episode from a few days ago that used a lot of outdated English words for jerks and goobers. You know, I was trying to be funny with the big Bible question. Usually I fail, but I sort of amuse myself, and it helps break up the monotony and at least keep things interesting for me. Well, the final way the big Bible question might manifest is misdirection or misleading. This is when I intentionally try to phrase the big Bible question in such a way so that you think you know the answer or you think you know where the topic is going to go, but lo and behold, we go off in another direction entirely or the answer isn't what it appears to be. Well, I'll let you decide what today's question fits under. Today, we are talking about the Ark of the Covenant, which is an item even most non-Christians know about, thanks to movies like Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark and its iconic ending scene. Now, for your information, if you are interested to know more about the Ark of the Covenant, please check out episode number 87 of this podcast, uh, and it's entitled something like, uh, What is the Ark of the Covenant and Where is the Ark of the Covenant? Now, you can find that episode on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, or you can just go straight to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, BibleReadingPodcast.com, and read the article or listen to the podcast from the website. Now, that big Bible question, what is the Ark of the Covenant and where is the Ark of the Covenant? That one was a bit of a misdirection because, honestly, I have no idea where the Ark of the Covenant is now, but we did answer the question on that episode where it will be in the future, because I know that for sure. And if you want to know that for sure, well, I guess you'll have to download that episode. Well, Raiders of the Lost Ark came out when I was a boy, so like 200 years ago, and therefore I don't 
feel like I need to give you a spoiler alert, but I am about to spoil the ending of the movie. Now, most old fogies like myself know how Raiders of the Lost Ark ends. The evil Nazis have managed to gain control of the Ark of the Covenant, found by the amazing and dashing architect Indiana Jones Solo, and before they can use the Ark to destroy the Allies, something terrifying, which strangely enough looks like multiple female ghosts, comes out of the Ark of the Covenant and melts all of the Nazis' faces. Now, that's not very theologically accurate for like 15 different reasons, but it is a pretty remarkable and iconic movie scene, and I remember it being pretty unsettling when I was a kid. I just watched it again on YouTube, and it is still pretty unsettling, even though the special effects are quite dated. I mean, you get to see a guy's face melt, which, you know, ouch. Now, Phoebe Thompson, do not look up this movie on YouTube. Now, Phoebe is my lovely and curious, precious, soon-to-be nine-year-old daughter who actually listens to this podcast. Anyway, the obvious message from the movie is that the Ark of the Covenant is powerful and it will kill you if you are a Nazi and try to use its power. So if you're listening to this episode today and you're a Nazi and you're thinking about trying to find the Ark of the Covenant, well, obviously you shouldn't. I just saved you a lot of trouble. And by the way, uh, stop being a Nazi because that's awful. Another story that we will soon read, uh, well, in about a month. It's in 2 Samuel 6, and it features the death of poor, unwise Uzzah, who reaches his hand out to steady the Ark of the Covenant, despite God's clear command not to touch it. And, as you probably know, Uzzah was instantly killed when that happened, and King David noped right back to his palace, leaving the Ark with some rando Philistine named Obed-Edom. Now, interestingly enough, Obed-Edom was from Gath, the same city Goliath was from. And you know what happened to our rando Philistinian friend? Philistinian? Philly friend? Philistine friend? I don't actually know how a person from Philistine... I mean, that would be weird um, to be from Philistine and say I'm a Philistine. Maybe it's Philistine. Yeah, Philistine friend. God super blessed Obed-Edom. So much so that David went back down to the Philistine territory and got the Ark back and took it to his palace. So obviously, from our survey of Raiders of the Lost Ark, a very important movie, and the skimming over of a couple of Bible passages without actually reading them, we know that the Ark was super powerful and a mighty artifact uh, that may have even carried terrifying ghosts with it. You know, probably a lot like the Spear of Destiny, which if you haven't heard of it, the Spear of Destiny is the spear that was supposedly stabbed the side of Jesus, and if you actually have the Spear of Destiny, that makes any army that uh, you're leading utterly invincible, right? Well, the Ark of the Covenant is probably like that, right? Oh yeah, I almost did forget. Uh, the Israelites carried the Ark around Jericho seven times, which was a hugely fortified city with amazing walls and stuff, and then the city collapsed, so that's another win for the Ark, right? So it's like undefeated. You see how powerful it is? Well, let's go read 1 Samuel 4, and we will see just exactly how powerful the Ark really is, and we'll see if we can find some clues to why it was so very powerful. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. 
Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped at Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines lined up in battle formation against Israel, and as the battle intensified, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the troops returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh. Well, duh, that's why you lost, guys. Then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh to bring back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord entered the camp, all the Israelites raised such a loud shout that the ground shook. And the Philistines heard the sound of the war and asked, What's this loud shouting in the Hebrews' camp? When the Philistines discovered that the Ark of the Lord had entered the camp, they panicked. A god has entered their camp, they said. Woe to us. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will rescue us from these magnificent gods? These are the gods that slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Show some courage and be men, Philistines. Otherwise, you'll serve the Hebrews just as they served you. Now be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. The Ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Huh. That same day, a Benjamite man ran from the battle and came to Shiloh. His clothes were torn and there was dirt on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair beside the road waiting because he was anxious about the Ark of God. When the man entered the city to give a report, the entire city cried out. Eli heard the outcry and asked, Why this commotion? The man quickly came and reported to Eli. At that time, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes didn't move because he couldn't see. The man said to Eli, I'm the one who came from the battle. I fled from there today. What happened, my son? Eli asked. The messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines, and also there was a great slaughter among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off the chair by the city gate, and since he was old and heavy, His neck broke and he died. Eli had judged Israel 40 years. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. When she heard the news about the capture of God's ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she collapsed and gave birth because her labor pains were on her. And as she was dying, the woman taking care of her said, Don't be afraid, you're giving birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, which that's what Ichabod means, referring to the capture of the Ark of God and to the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. The glory has departed from Israel, she said, because the Ark of God has been captured. Okay, that was surprising, right? Well, if you weren't surprised, Bible scholars, I know the Israelites were surprised. They had just lost a huge battle to the Philistines, and so they went for their secret weapon, the Ark of the Covenant, the guarantor of victory, right? Because it's just so powerful. And we see their attitude towards the Ark in verse 3. 
When the troops returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh. Then it will go with us and it will save us from our enemies. Huh. Only it didn't work. In fact, the Philistines were so riled up by the Ark being in the camp of Israel that they rallied themselves in fear and desperation and just utterly stomped the Israelites and captured their precious Ark. What went wrong? The Ark was undefeated. Well, like a lucky shirt won during a football game, the Ark of the Covenant had no power to determine the winner of a contest. The Ark of the Covenant, as historically special as it was, is, is not powerful in and of itself. It is a thing. The Israelites superstitiously trusted in a thing to save them rather than God, and it led to their downfall. Well, brothers and sisters, what are we trusting in to deliver us right now as we go through a surging pandemic? A politician, a scientist, a doctor? Hey, look, I'm rooting for good politicians, good scientists, and good doctors, but I'm not trusting in them to save us. So let's close out our discussion today with a bit of wisdom from our old friend Charles Spurgeon on this episode with the Ark of the Covenant. And you know, as I think about it, I realize I really should start paying Spurgeon a stipend for appearing on this show. He's a very regular contributor and Hopefully, if that insurance company deal I mentioned yesterday comes through, I guess I'll have to cut him in on some of the riches, right? It's the least I can do for Brother Charles. Well, this is what Spurgeon says. The Israelites trusted in the outward sign and forgot that the most holy emblems bring no blessing to ungodly hearts. God will have us know that external religion is nothing without inward holiness. It is vain to trust in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord are we. Ceremonies can't help us if the Lord is not with us. A cross on the chest is worthless. Christ in the heart is precious. The elders of Israel said, Let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh, that when it comes to us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. And they ascribed to the Ark then what could only be done by God himself. Now that's the tendency of us all, says Spurgeon. Anything which we can see, we desire after. Therefore, we lean upon an arm of flesh. We trust in man. We trust in things. Though it's written plainly enough in the word of God, cursed be the man that trusts in other men and makes flesh his strength and whose heart departs from the Lord. Yet still we want some symbol, some token, something outward before our eyes. And if it can be something artistic, so much the better. We lay hold of something beautiful that will charm the eye and produce a kind of sensuous feeling inside, and straight away we mistake our transient emotion for spiritual worship and true reverence. This is the great mistake that many still make. They think that God has come into the camp merely because some outward religious rite or ceremony or tradition has been observed or because some sacred shrine has been set up among them. And the ark of God was taken. And Spurgeon says, It was never captured till it was defended by carnal or fleshly weapons. True religion always suffers when men would guard it by force. Now, would you understand this? That last little phrase there, Spurgeon said that in the 1800s. And it's profound. And I wish Americans would memorize it and write it on the front page of their Bibles. 
True religion, true Christianity always suffers when men would guard it by force. The kingdom of God does not go forward by political power or financial power or charismatic power. And I don't mean gifts of the spirit. I mean personality power. I do believe in the gifts of the spirit. The kingdom of God does not go forth by the power of our personality or the power of our intelligence or the power of our political ways and elected officials. It suffers when men would guard it and seek to advance it by force. Spurgeon says, Some teachers attract attention to themselves and preachers too and are like the moon. When the moon shines, everybody says, What a beautiful moon. But the true prophet of God shines like the sun, and people do not say what a beautiful sun, but how lovely is the landscape. Let it be your ambition so to declare the word of God that people will not say, what a splendid preacher, but rather say, how glorious is his Christ. No man must come between the seeker and God, for the best of men are but men at their best. Not even the ordinances of religion can meet the needs of the people, though they are God-appointed. They were meant to lead us to God and not to be a substitute for him. When the Philistines triumphed, as we read about in the fourth chapter of Samuel, the elders said, let's fetch the Ark of the Covenant. And lo, when it came, it didn't save them. When people trust in the religious symbol instead of the spiritual power from God, they are idolaters in heart and they court disaster. But the house of Israel did not lament after the ark. They lamented after the Lord, without whose glory shining between the cherubim, even the ark was void and valueless. There is much gained when you and I look away from all others and from all else to God. Say it now. I will lift up my eye, mine eyes unto the hills from where comes my help. My help comes from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. And if your soul still sighs, oh, that he would help me. Oh, that it were true that he did hear me and would come to my rescue. Remember his promise. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. And friends, it is true. May we. In the midst of what we are going through, not trust in external things, though some of them are good, but trust in the Lord who says, call upon me in the day of trouble and trust in my deliverance. And Lord, we call on you. Save us. We continue reading. Jeremiah chapter 42, verse 1. Then all the commanders of the armies, along with Johanan, son of Kariah, Jetsaniah, son of Hoshala, and all the people from the least to the greatest approached the prophet Jeremiah and said, May our petition come before you. Pray to the Lord your God on our behalf, on behalf of this entire remnant, for a few of us remain out of the many, as you can see with your own eyes that the Lord your God may tell us the way we should go and the thing we should do. So the prophet Jeremiah said to them, I have heard, I will now pray to the Lord your God according to your words, and I will tell you every word that the Lord answers you. I won't withhold a word from you. And they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we don't act according to every word the Lord your God sends you to tell us. Whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, we will obey the Lord our God to whom we are sending you, So that it may go well with us, we will certainly obey the Lord our God. At the end of ten days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and he summoned Yohanan, son of Kariah, all the commanders of the armies who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest. And he said to them, This is what the Lord says, The God of Israel to whom you sent me to bring your petition before him. If you will indeed stay in this land, then I will rebuild and not demolish you, and I will plant and not uproot you, 
because I relent concerning the disaster that I have brought on you. Don't be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Don't be afraid of him. This is the Lord's declaration, because I am with you to save you and rescue you from him. I will grant you compassion, and he will have compassion on you and allow you to return to your own soil. But if you say, we will not stay in this land in order to disobey the Lord your God, and if you say, no, instead we will go to the land of Egypt where we will not see war or hear the sound of the ram's horn or hunger for food and we'll live there, then hear the word of the Lord, remnant of Judah. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. If you are firmly resolved to go to Egypt and stay there for a while, then the sword you fear will overtake you there in the land of Egypt, and the famine you are worried about will follow on your heels there to Egypt, and you will die there. All who resolve to go to Egypt to stay there for a while will die by the sword, famine, and plague. They will have no survivor or fugitive from the disaster I will bring on them. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Just as my anger and fury was poured out on Jerusalem's residents, so will my fury pour out on you if you go to Egypt. You will become an example for cursing, scorn, execration, and disgrace, and you will never see this place again. The Lord has spoken concerning you, remnant of Judah. Don't go to Egypt. Know for certain that I have warned you today. You have gone astray at the cost of your lives because you were the ones who sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray to the Lord our God on our behalf. And as for all that the Lord our God says, says, tell it to us and we'll act accordingly. For I've told you today, but you have not obeyed the Lord your God and everything he has sent me to tell you. Now therefore know for certain that by the sword, famine, and plague, you will die in the place where you desire to go to stay for a while. Psalm chapter 18, verse 1. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I was saved from my enemies. The ropes of death were wrapped around me. The torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of shale entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. I called to the Lord in my distress, and I cried to my God for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the mountains trembled. They shook because he burned with anger. Smoke rose from his nostrils, and consuming fire came from his mouth. Coals were set ablaze by it. He bent the heavens and came down, total darkness beneath his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew, soaring on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, dark storm clouds his canopy around him. From the radiance of his presence, his clouds swept onward with hail and blazing coals. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High made his voice heard. He shot his arrows and scattered them. He hurled lightning bolts and routed them. The depths of the sea became visible. The foundations of the earth world were exposed at your rebuke, Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He pulled me up out of deep water. He rescued me from my powerful enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out to a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. He repaid me according to the cleanness of my hands, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not turned from my God to wickedness. Indeed, I let all his ordinances guide me and have not disregarded his statutes. I was blameless toward him and kept myself from my iniquity, so the Lord repaid me according to my righteousness, 
according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the faithful you prove yourself faithful, with the blameless you prove yourself blameless, with the pure you prove yourself pure, but with the crooked you prove yourself shrewd. For you rescue an oppressed people, but you humble those with haughty eyes. Lord, you light my lamp, my God illuminates my darkness. With you I can attack a barricade, and with my God I can leap over a wall. God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is pure. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock? Only our God. God, he clothes me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and sets me securely on the heights. He trains my hands for war. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand upholds me and your humility exalts me. You make a spacious place beneath me, for my steps and my ankles do not give way. I pursue my enemies and overtake them. I do not turn back until they are wiped out. I crush them and they cannot get up. They fall beneath my feet. You have clothed me with strength for battle. You subdue my adversaries beneath me. You have made my enemies retreat before me. I annihilate those who hate me. They cry for help, but there is no one to save them. They cry to the Lord, but he does not answer them. I pulverize them like dust before the wind. I trample them like mud in the streets. You have freed me from the feuds among the people. You have appointed me the head of nations, a people I had not known serve me. Foreigners submit to me, cringing as soon as they hear they obey me. Foreigners lose heart and come trembling from their fortification. The Lord lives, blessed be my rock. The God of my salvation is exalted. God, he grants me vengeance and subdues people under me. He frees me from my enemies. You exalt me above my adversaries. You rescue me from violent men. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, Lord. I will sing praises about your name. He gives great victories to his king. He shows loyalty to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Romans chapter 4. Verse 1, What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then, or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still circumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified because the law produces wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to the one who is of the law, but also to the one who is of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist, he believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken. So will your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about a hundred years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised he was able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. What a great place to end today. Jesus was delivered up for mine and your sins and raised up for mine and your justification. Rejoice in that and be glad and be safe and be protected by the mighty hand of the Lord. Godspeed.